Section 181 of Complete Original Short Stories of Guy de Maupassant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio. Section 181. A Cremation. Last Monday, an Indian prince died at Etretat, Babu Sahib Kanderao Gate, a relation of His Highness, the Maharaja Gekwar, Prince of Baroda, in the province of Gujarat, Presidency of Bombay. For about three weeks there had been seen walking in the streets about ten young East Indians, small, lithe, with dark skins, dressed all in grey, and wearing on their heads caps such as English grooms wear. They were men of high rank who had come to Europe to study the military institutions of the principal Western nations. The little band consisted of three princes, a nobleman, an interpreter, and three servants. The head of the commission had just died, an old man of forty-two and father-in-law of San Patro Cachival Gacquar, brother of His Highness, the Gacquar of Baroda. The son-in-law accompanied his father-in-law. The other East Indians were called Ganpatro Chavaranrao Gekwar, cousin of His Highness Kasharao Gadav, Vasudev Madhav Samarth, interpreter and secretary, and the slaves, Ramchandra Bajaji, Ganu bin Pukiram Kukate, Rampaji bin Fabji. On leaving his native land, the one who died recently was overcome with terrible grief, and feeling convinced that he would never return, he wished to give up the journey, but he had to obey the wishes of his noble relative, the Prince of Baroda, and he set out. They came to spend the latter part of the summer at Etretat, and people would go out of curiosity every morning to see them taking their bath at the Etablissement de Roche Blanche. Five or six days ago, Bapu Sahib Kanderagate was taken with pains in his gums, then the inflammation spread to his throat and became ulceration. Gangrene set in, and, on Monday, the doctors told his young friends that their relative was dying. The final struggle was already beginning, and the breath had almost left the unfortunate man's body when his friends seized him, snatched him up from his bed, and laid him on the stone floor of the room, so that, stretched out on the earth, our mother, he should yield up his soul, according to the command of Brahma. They then sent to ask the mayor, Monsieur Boisset, for a permit to burn the body that very day, so as to fulfill the prescribed ceremonial of the Hindu religion. The mayor hesitated, telegraphed to the prefecture to demand instructions, at the same time sending word that failure to reply would be considered by him tantamount to consent. As he had received no reply at nine o'clock that evening, he decided, in view of the infectious character of the disease of which the East Indian had died, that the cremation of the body should take place that very night, beneath the cliff, on the beach, at ebb tide. The mayor is being criticized now for this decision, though he acted as an intelligent, liberal, and determined man, and was upheld and advised by three physicians who had watched the case and reported the death. They were dancing at the casino that evening. It was an early autumn evening, rather chilly. A pretty strong wind was blowing from the ocean, although as yet there was no sea on, and no swift, light, ragged clouds driving across the sky. They came from the edge of the horizon, looking dark against the background of the sky, but as they approached the moon they grew whiter and passed hurriedly across her face, veiling it for a few seconds without completely hiding it. The tall straight cliffs that enclose the rounded beach of Etretat, and terminate in two celebrated arches, called the Gates, lay in shadow, and made two great black patches in the softly lighted landscape. It had rained all day. The casino orchestra was playing waltzes, polkas, and quadrilles. A rumor was presently circulating among the groups of dancers. It said that an East Indian prince had just died at the Hotel de Bain, and that the ministry had been approached for permission to burn the body. No one believed it, or at least no one supposed that such a thing could occur, so foreign was the custom, as yet to our customs, and as the night was far advanced, everyone went home. At midnight, the lamplighter, running from street to street, extinguished one after another the yellow jets of flame that lighted up the sleeping houses, the mud, and the puddles of water. We waited, watching for the hour when the little town would be quiet and deserted. 
Ever since noon, a carpenter had been cutting up wood and asking himself with amazement what was going to be done with all these planks sawn up into little bits, and why one should destroy so much good merchandise. This wood was piled up in a cart, which went along through side streets as far as the beach, without arousing the suspicion of belated persons who might meet it. It went along on the shingle at the foot of the cliff, and having dumped its contents on the beach, the three Indian servants began to build a funeral pile, a little longer than it was wide. They worked alone, for no profane hand must aid in this solemn duty. It was one o'clock in the morning when the relations of the deceased were informed that they might accomplish their part of the work. The door of the little house they occupied was open, and we perceived, lying on a stretcher in the small, dimly-lighted vestibule, the corpse covered with white silk. We could see him plainly as he lay stretched out on his back, his outline clearly defined beneath his white veil. The East Indians, standing at his feet, remained motionless, while one of them performed the prescribed rites, murmuring unfamiliar words in a low, monotonous tone. He walked round and round the corpse, touching it occasionally. Then, taking an urn suspended from three slender chains, he sprinkled it for some time with the sacred water of the Ganges, that East Indians must always carry with them wherever they go. Then the stretcher was lifted by four of them who started off at a slow march. The moon had gone down, leaving the muddy, deserted streets in darkness, but the body on the stretcher appeared to be luminous, so dazzlingly white was the silk, and it was a weird sight to see, passing along through the night, the semi-luminous form of this corpse, borne by these men, the dusky skin of whose faces and hands could hardly be distinguished from their clothing in the darkness. Behind the corpse came three Indians, and then, a full head taller than themselves and wrapped in an ample traveling coat of a soft gray color, appeared the outline of an Englishman, a kind and superior man, a friend of theirs, who was their guide and counselor in their European travels. Beneath the cold, misty sky of this little northern beach, I felt as if I were taking part in a sort of symbolical drama. It seemed to me that they were carrying there, before me, the conquered genius of India, followed, as in a funeral procession, by the victorious genius of England robed in grey Ulster. On the shingly beach the four bearers halted in a few moments to take breath, and then proceeded on their way. They now walked quickly, bending beneath the weight of their burden. At length they reached the funeral pile. It was erected in an indentation at the very foot of the cliff, which rose above it perpendicularly a hundred meters high, perfectly white but looking grey in the night. The funeral pile was about three and a half feet high. The corpse was placed on it, and then one of the Indians asked to have the pole star pointed out to him. This was done, and the dead Raja was laid with his feet turned toward his native country. Then twelve bottles of kerosene were poured over him, and he was covered completely with thin slabs of pine wood. For almost another hour the relations and servants kept piling up the funeral pyre, which looked like one of those piles of wood that carpenters keep in their yards. Then on top of this was poured the contents of twenty bottles of oil, and on top of all they emptied a bag of fine shavings. A few steps further on, a flame was glimmering in a little bronze brazier, which had remained lighted since the arrival of the corpse. The moment had arrived. The relations went to fetch the fire. As it was barely alight, some oil was poured on it, and suddenly a flame arose, lighting up the great wall of rock from summit to base. An Indian who was leaning over the brazier rose upright, his two hands in the air, elbows bent, and all at once we saw arising, all black on the immense white cliff, a colossal shadow, the shadow of Buddha in his hieratic posture and the little pointed toque that the man wore on his head even looked like the headdress of the god. The effect was so striking and unexpected that I felt my heart beat as though some supernatural apparition had risen up before me. That was just what it was, the ancient and sacred image come from the heart of the East to the ends of Europe, and watching over its son whom they were going to cremate there. It vanished. They brought fire. The shavings on top of the pyre were lighted, and then the wood caught fire, and a brilliant light illuminated the cliff, the shingle, and the foam of the waves as they broke on the beach. It grew brighter from second to second, lighting up on the sea in the distance the dancing crest of the waves. 
The breeze from the ocean blew in gusts, increasing the heat of the flame which flattened down, twisted, then shot up again, throwing out millions of sparks. They mounted with wild rapidity along the cliff and were lost in the sky, mingling with the stars, increasing their number. Some seabirds who had awakened uttered their plaintive cry, and, describing long curves, flew with their white wings extended through the gleam from the funeral pyre and then disappeared in the night. Before long the pile of wood was nothing but a mass of flame, not red but yellow, a blinding yellow, a furnace lashed by the wind, and suddenly, beneath a stronger gust, it tottered, partially crumbling as it leaned toward the sea, and the corpse came into view, full length, blackened on his couch of flame and burning with the long blue flames. The pile of wood having crumbled further on the right, the corpse turned over as a man does in bed. They immediately covered him with fresh wood, and the fire started up again more furiously than ever. The East Indians, seated in a semicircle on the shingle, looked out with sad, serious faces. And to the rest of us, as it was very cold, we had drawn nearer to the fire until the smoke and sparks came in our faces. There was no odor save that of burning pine and petroleum. Hours passed. Day began to break. Toward five o'clock in the morning nothing remained but a heap of ashes. The relations gathered them up, cast some of them to the winds, some in the sea, and kept some in a brass vase that they had brought from India. Then they retired to their home to give utterance to lamentations. These young princes and their servants, by the employment of the most inadequate appliances, succeeded in carrying out the cremation of their relation in the most perfect manner, with singular skill and remarkable dignity. Everything was done according to ritual, according to the rigid ordinances of their religion. Their dead one rests in peace. The following morning at daybreak there was an indescribable commotion in Etretat. Some insisted that they had burned a man alive, others that they were trying to hide a crime, some that the mayor would be put in jail, others that the Indian prince had succumbed to an attack of cholera. The men were amazed, the women indignant. A crowd of people spent the day on the site of the funeral pile, looking for fragments of bone in the shingle that was still warm. They found enough bones to reconstruct ten skeletons, for the farmers of the shore frequently throw their dead sheep into the sea. The finders carefully place these various fragments in their pocketbooks, but not one of them possesses a true particle of the Indian prince. That very night, a deputy sent by the government came to hold an inquest. He, however, formed an estimate of this singular case like a man of intelligence and good sense. But what should he say in his report? The East Indians declared that if they had been prevented in France from cremating their dead, they would have taken him to a freer country where they could carry out their customs. Thus I have seen a man cremated on a funeral pile, and it has now given me a wish to disappear in the same manner. In this way, everything ends at once. Man expedites the slow work of nature instead of delaying it by the hideous coffin in which one decomposes for months. The flesh is dead, the spirit has fled. Fire which purifies disperses in a few hours all that was a human being. It casts it to the winds, converting it to air and ashes, and not into ignominious corruption. This is clean and hygienic. Putrefaction beneath the ground in a closed box where the body becomes like pap, a blackened, stinking pap, has about it something repugnant and disgusting. The sight of the coffin as it descends into this muddy hole wrings one's heart with anguish. But the funeral pyre which flames up beneath the sky has about it something grand, beautiful, and solemn. End of section 181. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Columbus, Ohio.